Welcome to Video Store. I am Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1959 film Some Like It Hot. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. Thanks. Barrett, thanks for recommending a comedy. Uh, we've it's been <laughs> kind of heavy the last couple of weeks, so uh, so this this was nice. And I will say this was um, a delight to watch. I have ne- I'd never seen this. This is a movie that was um, that is much hyped. Um, you know, this is we'll talk a little bit about lists, but this is uh, at the top of some pretty prominent lists uh, for uh, for movie comedies. So the bar was set pretty high, and I I thoroughly enjoyed uh, enjoyed this movie. Um, what is your history with this film? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to remember how it fits into my history with Billy Wilder, you know, cause I've seen, I've seen a lot of Wilder, uh, films. I actually, I don't remember the first time I saw some like it hot in, in, in I don't remember if it was even uh, a film society thing in college or on DVD. So I've really got no recollection of when I first encountered. It. Um, well, Talk to me about Billy Wilder then, because um, I want to. I'm going to preface this question by reading. Um, this is a quote from the 1959 Hollywood Reporter review of this, which indicates something about uh, who Billy Wilder is. Um, but I actually, but but I, but I, I know he makes a lot. This is he makes lots of different kinds of movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Wilder does. Yes. Um, but I, but th- th- this jumped out at me as they as they were praising Wilder uh, as a particular kind of filmmaker. So this also just reads like a great 1959 Hollywood Reporter re- uh, review. It says, <laughs> "Some like it hot" is another supersonic breakneck be- breakneck belly laugh that should come as a blockbusting bonanza at the box office. Lots of bees in there. Uh, It should be proof that when the making of pictures is taken out of the hands of men of measured merriment and handed over to men whose only purpose is to create amusement, they are still the world's best means of entertainment. Billy Wilder, who produced, directed, and wrote the screenplay with IAL Diamond, was on the front burner all the way. So they're definitely praising Wilder as uh, as a different kind of filmmaker. So tell me a little bit about um, kind of contextualize Billy Wilder for me. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just I just want to comment on the fact that uh, Bill, Billy Wilder was kind of known for his uh, for his energy as an individual. He, you know, he made films into the late seventies and uh, evidently hadn't really lost any of his pep. He just had a hard time finding a studio that wanted to let him continue to make films. So and he was incredibly um, prolific. I can't remember how many films he made, but he started in the late thirties and made films for 40 years, usually a, a film a year. So one of the things that is uh, interesting about Wilder is he's a, he's a German emigre. Um, he started out actually as a journalist uh, in Nazi Germany and he fled uh, Nazi Germany to come to Hollywood. So it's always remarkable when you have somebody who's working in their second language. Um, he, he, but he had uh, a couple of different partners. The, uh, the first part of his career, he wrote mostly with a, a novelist named Charles Brackett. And so together they wrote uh, some of his great films, such as The Lost Weekend, which is a really serious drama about alcoholism with Ray Moland. Uh, they wrote Sunset Boulevard, which is one of the great films about Hollywood and may show up uh, on this program at some point in the future. Uh, and then the second part of his career, beginning in uh, actually beginning around 1953 or so, he started writing with I.A.L. IAL Diamond, who also was an emigre originally from uh, Romania or Moldavia, one of those places uh, known as Izzy Diamond, 
Uh, and so together they wrote about a dozen pictures, uh, including those with um, Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon made uh, five more films with Billy Wilder after Some Like It Hot uh, and Izzy Diamond and Will Wilder wrote those. So yeah, Wilder is a, is a man of many parts. Uh, he can write uh, silly sex comedies like Love in the Afternoon. He can write one of the great noirs of all time, Double Indemnity with uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, he can do war pictures like Stylock 17. Uh, another film of his that I really love, which is kind of getting new recognition again, is called Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas, which is made in 1951, but you can watch it today and it is still as savvy a critique of media and quote false news as anything that you'll ever ever watch. Um, he handles a wide range of tones. Um, so he's just he's, he's just kind of a master master filmmaker, I think. Well, what's interesting about that? A couple of things you you mentioned there that I want to circle back to. What's interesting about that is uh, as I was reading a praise for this movie, there's a there's a great. Um, BBC article, BBC culture article, when they came out, I think in 2018, we'll get to lists in a minute here, of like the greatest comedy films of all time. This was number one. And there was a great ep uh, article by uh, Nicholas Barber, uh, 2017, where he talks about why this movie's at the top. And uh, there's a couple things I want to get to in there. Uh, but one of the things that he points out is the fluidity of genre, even within this movie, right? So like, so Wilder works in a lot of genre, but he says this movie is a romantic comedy. It's a buddy mm -hmm. picture. Uh, it's got mobsters in it. It's also a mm -hmm. musical. It's like it, it's it's a farce. It's all of these different things are happening. Like like you know, it's slapstick. Every every five minutes, you're in a scene, and you're like, okay, well, what's this going to be? But it all holds together too. It doesn't feel disjointed, even though it's has it's sort of pulling from all of these different things, which makes sense to hear you talk about him as a filmmaker, both in terms of the energy it takes to do something like that, but also. The fact that he has experience working in all these different genres. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was thinking about this, Sam. I was thinking about you know we had a very we had a different example early on of a film that mixes genres, and we watched Solomon's Travels, for example, uh, which starts out as one kind of film and ends up as another kind of film. Whereas you're right, this this is more he's interweaving. Uh, the two main genres are the are the the gangster and this kind of the screwball comedy, but he's got the other elements as well. And it seems particularly uh, appropriate that there's a fluidity of genre when there's also a fluidity of gender uh, mm -hmm. in the film. For 1959, it's very daring uh, in the way that it takes on uh, the idea of different uh, gender gender roles uh, and uh, what the lines are between the sexes and how 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 they can be transgressed, erased. Um, uh, trespassed on. Yeah, and and that that's actually the big theme of this this uh, Nicholas Barber article is um, how much this movie stands up um, in in a world where we think a lot about identity in lots and lots of different ways, and how this is not just about this sort of fluidity of gender, but but people playing different roles, people taking on different roles, people crafting new identities. Um, uh, how many name changes are in this movie? So um, he talks about the scene on the beach when um, uh, Sugar first meets uh, Joe as playing Junior, um, <laughs> right? I think I got all those names yeah, right there. Right, right, right. Um, so I'm going to read a paragraph here because he, he first he breaks down that scene in terms of the comedy and things like this. But then he says this actually encapsulates to him what he thinks this movie is about in terms of identity. So he says, look at that beach scene with Joe and Sugar. It was written by two men who were once called Samuel Wilder 
uh, and um, Itech Dominci, and acted by a man and a woman who were once called Bernie Schwartz and Norma Jean Mortensen. Schwartz, <laughs> who remained him, who renamed himself Tony Curtis, is playing Joe, who's pretending to be Junior, <laughs> using the aid of a mid-Atlantic vowels of Cary Grant, who was once called Archibald Leach. Mortensen, who renamed herself Marilyn Monroe, is playing Sugar uh, Kozilek, who renamed herself Sugar Kane, and who's using lines which Joe used when he was pretending to be Josephine, because she talks about studying at the Sheboygan Conservatory, yep. so she's picking up things from that. Yep. says, not even Twelfth Night or the importance of being earnest had such elaborate fun with characters' identities. Names, <laughs> genders, social standing, they all change, and some like it hot. It's the American way. <laughs> and it's just like that scene doesn't like there's so many layers to that both within the text of the movie and thinking about who who these who these people are that are that are I, producing I, 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 yeah and i really appreciate the shakespearean connection because um uh 12th night is kind of the archetypal uh example and of course in shakespearean theater you had men playing women already so you have a man playing a woman playing a man uh, in, in, in Twelfth Night. So yeah, that that's that that's a wonderful encapsulation. Uh, and I would also add to that commentary that it also illustrates uh, another blurring of distinction, which is between art and life. Uh, uh, in, in terms of these characters who've already renamed themselves in real life and now renamed themselves in art. Yeah, uh, another thing that jumped out at me watching this movie, and we, we've touched on this a little bit, is the. Um, this is a movie that's just that's got like star power in it. And it's one of those things. It's one thing to say a movie has a great cast, but I feel like this is a great cast doing the things that they do. Great. Um, I am familiar with Jack. I've seen lots of Jack Lemmon movies, mostly familiar with old Jack Lemmon. So this is the third movie in a row where in my notes, I wrote young insert name here. I was so excited to see young Jack Lemmon. He's 34 in this movie. So at least I'm getting a little younger by being excited about seeing somebody young, but I don't think about him. If you were to ask me like, who are your, who are actors you really love? But I don't know that I've ever not loved Jack Lemmon in something. Mm. And in this movie, he, he's my favorite thing in this movie. I just, I, I think every time he's doing something, I, I really, uh, I'm really drawn to, to his particular energy. Um, and, and kind of, I think his brand of comedy, I think I just like the things that, um, that he's in. Um, and I, I didn't realize that at this point, Jack Lemmon had already won an Oscar. He won an Oscar in 1955. So he was, a, a. I didn't know, I was trying to, I didn't know sort of where this fit into his career, but he was, he was already a big star at this point, right? Yeah, he was a pretty big star, although I think this is really the first time that uh, his comic abilities kind of got tapped into, uh, you know, because the Academy, the Academy Award was for Ensign Pulver, uh, fairly, fairly serious, uh, serious role. Um, but it's interesting you make that point about the cast, um, Sam, because as well written as this film is, and as well directed as it is, I do think that it depends a lot on the chemistry of the right players in those roles. So Tony Curtis was always slotted for, for Joe, but the original intention of the producers was to get Frank Sinatra uh, in the Jack Lemmon role, and then Mitzi Gaynor in the Marilyn Monroe uh, role. And I just, I have a hard time, I, I can't imagine Sinatra pulling it off for, for one. And, you know, Mitzi Gaynor's interesting, but um, nobody's, nobody is Marilyn Monroe. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, they didn't was, think they could get her. I mean, that was, that's, no, that's no. why, yeah. But they were aiming really, yeah, I mean, She was at the peak of her career and at the peak of um, her, the increasing difficulty that she had on the set. I don't know how much people know about that, but she was absolutely famous for not remembering lines. They, they sometimes had to do, uh, the, the, the scene where she says, where's the bourbon? 
She couldn't remember the line. They shot it 40 times. And, and what uh, Billy Wilder did was he put uh, the line inside the drawer and then she kept opening the wrong drawer. So he, he had to put the line in, in every drawer in, in the bureau. So when she found, and, and one, of the, one of the articles I was reading was saying, you, you, you know, you read about how difficult she was, how she couldn't remember lines, et cetera, et cetera. But then you see her in, in front of the camera and she's pure magic. And, and, and you know why people, I mean, Wilder had directed her before. He directed her in The Seven Year Itch. So he knew what he was getting into. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, you know, she has that kind of quintessential star power, uh, that indefinable something. Well, and it was interesting watching this because I have to be honest, I don't know that I've ever seen a movie she's been in. I mean, she's, she's I mean, you know, I... You know, I was born post like Andy Warhol, everything. So it's like, like she was an icon, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like being aware of Elvis, but never actually listening to Elvis. And all of a sudden you listen, it was like, oh, I, now I get it in a different way. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, like to me, she was always just this, this picture that you saw and this, the stories people told about her and things like this, but to actually watch her in this movie, I think you're right. Like, like it is, uh, you're watching a movie star in a particular kind of way. Somebody who, 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 uh, a lot of the things I was writing about is like, no matter how great, um, Tony Curtis is, no matter how great Jack Lemon is when she's on the screen, you end up watching her, um, you know, and, uh, and I, and, and, and the way that Wilder knew how to do that as well, both in terms of helping get those performances out of her, but even just the way things are shot. I mean, I think there was, um, one of the articles I read was talking about, the one of the musical numbers they do where she's uh she's singing and and she's singing and she's in a spotlight and they Mm -hmm. said that they they use the spotlight and the way she moves in the spotlight moves almost like a strip tease like it's like we're gonna only show you little things and move and move around and it's just like like wilder knew what he was doing in terms of he knew what he had and and i feel like knew how to maximize that with her too but you know there's something else too sam and this may be a completely subjective uh perspective but you know, sometimes when you're watching big stars, we've had this conversation before. Sometimes in your head, you keep saying, oh, that's that big star. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why my wife can't watch Jack Nicholson. No matter who he plays, she always thinks that's Jack Nicholson. But I, I don't feel that way about Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I, I didn't think to myself, I'm watching this icon. I really thought I'm watching Sugar Cane. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I really think she has, for me anyway, she has the ability to disappear into the, into the character. Uh, huh. Yeah. Well, this character, this character fit the icon okay, though, is oh, part yeah. of it. Yeah. I'm like, I don't, I, again, so can you, and what are other films that she did? If somebody was like, I want to see, I want to see another performance by her. What would be, what would be a, the next movie to go to? Well, you know, I guess um, this actually segues into a, a little bit of, uh, I want to talk a little bit about how the film is, is self-referential uh, cinematically. And so, you know, something like um, How to Marry a Millionaire uh, was, was one of her previous films. It wasn't for Billy Wilder, it was for Gene Agalusco. Um, but that certainly would be, you know, kind of an iconic one. Uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, um, The Seven Year Itch I mentioned, you know, the, the, those are the ones where she really kind of plays into her, um, her bombshell uh, persona. But one of her earlier successes and uh, one, of her fir- uh, one of her first color films was a, a kind of a noir called Niagara. Um, and uh, she's very, she's very good in that. And, uh, that's also a film that this film quotes. Niagara has a very famous long 30 second walk 
in which she walks away from the camera with these very exaggerated hip movements. And it's this, it's a scene that Wilder then recreates as she walks towards the train and Jack Lemmon says it's a whole other sex. He also quotes himself by having the steam come up and blow up her dress, uh, which is a visual quote of a the, one of the most famous scenes in Seven Year Itch, where the subway steam blows her dress up. Uh, and that was a very famous shoot. They took about seven hours and had about 2,000 spectators watching. Uh, and it was <laughs> one of the reasons why she and Joe DiMaggio got divorced. Uh, he was so infuriated by, uh, by that display of her sexuality. Um, another film of hers that I think is really important, an early one in a dramatic role, is uh, one of my favorite noirs called Clash by Night, which is written by Clifford Odets. And she's re really very, very good in that. So those are some kind of starting starting places. Oh, one more, one more. Another Bill, uh, uh, she was in an early, even earlier Billy Wilder film with Cary Grant called Monkey Business. Um, not to be confused with a Marx Brother film, but uh, she's, that's that. So anyway, that, that's, those are some that I would go to to get kind of the, the, um, uh, the Marilyn Monroe experience. All right. So we've talked a little bit about Lemon. We've talked a little bit about Monroe. Um, who was Tony Curtis in 1959? That's a good question. He wasn't, um, he, he wasn't a star of the stature of either and any of the others. I can't, uh, his, his career kind of started in about 53 or so. And I can't remember to be honest, what he'd done up to this point. Um, so he was sort of the wild card for me. Okay, which is interesting because he was the first. He was the yeah. first. Uh, the first piece in the um, in the casting, and and I think um, Wilder or Curtis talked about how Wilder like saw him at a party or something, and he's like, "You're the person for this role because you're beautiful." Like it was, uh, yeah, I think was was a big piece of it, and and he thought that that he could play the the junior character and be convincing. Well, that, you know, that, that dead on, uh, imitation of Cary Grant, um, which is wonderful because when he goes into it, of course, Jack Lemon says, nobody talks like that. Um, which is, you know, and this is, this is the, the second film in our series where we've had Cary Grant commenting on Cary Grant, right? Because, uh, even putting on the glasses evokes Cary Grant from, uh, bringing up baby. Uh, and it kind of moves the opposite way. He takes off the glasses to be Cary Grant and bringing up baby, and he puts them on to be Cary Grant in, in, in this in this film. Uh, and I, I honestly don't know enough about the history of the film to know. Uh, I'm assuming that um, doing the Cary Grant imitation was uh, serendipitous because that's what Tony Curtis could do. I don't know if, uh, I doubt they wrote the script looking for somebody to imitate Cary Grant, but it just worked perfectly. Well, I have to say, you'll be you'll be very proud to know that uh, before I read anything, when I saw uh, when I saw him start that, I was like, "Oh, it's Cary Grant!" Like I'm starting to learn. I was like, oh, "I know, I know that reference." So. Which also means that of of the two actors, um, Tony Curtis spends less time as his primary character than any other actor, right? Because half the time uh, he's uh, he's a woman, and the other half of the time he's the millionaire. Uh, he hardly spends any time actually as uh, as Joe. Yeah. Um, I, I partially why I was curious about Lemon and, um, and Curtis was like, like what, what would, what would it have meant in 1959 for these two actors to play these roles where they play women and or play, play men pretending to be women and things like that. So I was just sort of curious because, um, what's, uh, it was interesting. This movie was really well received when it, when it came out. Um, one of the things that I found fascinating and maybe this is common and I just didn't know this, but, um, how the the contracts worked for some of the stars in this movie that they got a 
Uh, was it common for, for people to get like a percentage of the gross of movies? Because um, bo both yeah, Curtis and Monroe, that was yeah, that was how they got paid. It's it's a it's a little unusual for contract players, um, you know. Too so yeah, I I was actually I was actually surprised that they got that that they got that kind of a cut. Um, yeah. Generally, that didn't happen at least not in the 30s and 40s. Maybe it happened more in the 50s. I'm not sure, but yeah, that, I think that was unusual. Because if I'm doing the math right, it it seems like Monroe made a million dollars on this movie. Probably so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. which in 1959 money, I I can't imagine. <laughs> What I, that, I, I think I read that she made 200 million in her career or something like that. Yeah, she, yeah. 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 So I was, I was just sort of, I was floored by that because I, because I even thought if you're getting a percentage of the, of the gross, you would, you wouldn't give that kind of percentage, but clearly some of these folks did. It's, Which, also, uh, it's, also, it's also unusual among the classic films. Something you mentioned a minute ago, Sam, that, you know, sometimes when we watch these quote classic or great films, uh, we say, you know, there's been a rise in the reputation. So Vertigo was a key example, right? Kind of almost a flop. Uh, whereas this film, it started out high and it's always, it's always been up there. So maybe let's talk about that. So, so um, two, and now there's a million lists of movies, different things. Uh, when the AFI came out with their, I think it was probably 97, 98, their, um, I think they called it 100 Years, 100 Laughs, like their greatest comedies of all time. This was number one on that list in 2017 when the BBC came out with their 100 greatest film comedies. This was number one on that list. Um, and we've talked a little bit about comedy uh, on, on previous episodes uh, and how in some ways comedy is, mo is more subjective. There's, there's different people find different things funny. So what I'm wondering is to be a film that tops lists like this, does it mean you're the funniest film or you cross the threshold of funny for the most people? Ah, that's an, uh, that's, that's an interesting question. I, um, well, you know, so much of comedy as you're suggesting is culturally and socially and historically dependent, right? So um, I don't think you can go for funniest for the most people unless you want to kind of add up the laughs over the years. I, I, I think it's what, what remains fundamentally funny, fundamentally humorous, uh, for an audience at any at any given time, you know, because as, as you and I talked about bringing up Baby a while ago, you know, there are have been enough cultural and social changes that for some people that's a very difficult film to laugh at. Um, whereas, and and I think it's hard for comedy. Comedy tends towards the topical. Uh, it tends to be very. Um, it's culturally and socially sensitive, right? Because it requires the nuanced understanding of how society operates. But I think wh why a film like Some Like It Hot works, and of course, I, even as I say this, I'm saying this in the perspective of Western culture mm -hmm. um, in terms of how it deals with gender issues. But certainly gender issues, sexual identity issues, um, the pursuit of love, you know, those are kind of uh, concerns that remain uh, fairly consistent, even if they're handled somewhat differently in, um, in, in, in society. So it's interesting. What's interesting to me about this, though, is that I was about to say, yeah, the problem with bringing up baby was the social stratification, right? That that con that concerned you especially in terms of what the rich people get away with. But you've got that here too. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the difference is you have, I think, a slight satire of the upper class, which you don't really get as much of in some of the other films. So you know, Oswald is um, uh, he he's he's kind of a goofy character. And so you, you, you end up feeling like there's a little bit of an underlying s satire going on. Um, speaking of Oswald, do you have 
do you have favorite uh, of the non sort of three big star characters? Because this is this is also a film loaded with lots of little uh, smaller characters who come in and out of the film, deliver some great hits, and then and then move on. Well, you know, jo Joey Brown is 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 wonderful, of course, but I, I have to single out somebody that you may not have noticed or thought much about because he's one of my favorite favorite supporting actors, uh, and that's Big Mike Mazurki. Uh, he's the he's the the guy that towers over everybody else in in Spatz's uh, uh, retinue. Uh, Mazurki was a professional wrestler, uh, and he continued wrestling throughout his film career. I, I can't count the number of movies he made. If you look at his filmography. Um, uh, in uh, uh, Wikipedia, he probably was in 150, 200 films, uh, and he always played the the big dumb guy. Uh, and he is uh, really good in one of my favorite favorite noirs uh, from 1944 with Dick Powell called Murder My Sweet. And I, I love that noir because it has this comic edge to it. Because anything with Dick Powell in it's going to have a little bit of a comic edge. And Mazurki plays this big dumb lout who who thinks he's being smart, but most of the time he's being dumb. So I just love Mike Mazurki. Anytime he shows up, I'm 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 uh, I'm happy. He definitely stood out to me. Um, it, you know, in part, and it's funny because this is this is a reference to a movie which comes later. But I mean, it was it was like if. Uh, Luca Brazzi from the from the Godfather was was like but in a comedy, you know, like yeah. like and Luca Brazzi has there's some funny elements to him, but also very scary elements to him. But <laughs> but it's it I, that's exactly I that's who I like that guy stood out to me as well. And it was like I, I don't know who that person is, but 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 everything they did with him, like whenever whenever a shot would either have him in it or it would sort of kind of move towards him, I, I got excited. I was like, something good's gonna happen. <laughs> I can't remember. Was he the guy who had the golf bag? Was he the one with the golf bag that then pulled out the big machine gun from the golf bag? Or was he the one with the golf bag? He was the one that had the the pistol then, uh, and then the bullets on the other. Oh one. yeah, yeah, right, right, right. That was a great yeah. joke too. But the, the the other guy that I liked, and I can't remember the actor's name. Um, he was often uh, sitting next to Mike Mazurki. Uh, he billed himself as the ugliest man in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't stop looking at his face either. I just, that's, that's what I love about the gangsters. They all had such great, they all had such great faces. And of course, Spatz himself is played by the, the great George Raft, um, who hadn't been in any films recently before that. But of course, he had had a lot of a lot of gangster roles earlier in his career. Well, so I think the the uh, the gangster plot is really is really interesting because this is you don't think about it because it's this comedy and it and it goes in all these directions, but. This is a fairly violent movie too. Like you, there there are two scenes where there's a uh, you know multiple murders just sort of laid out, not exactly on screen, but I mean the 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 uh, the, the what they witness at the beginning of the movie, and then right. at the um, oh what was it called the Italian Opera? I can't remember the name of the yeah, organization. Yeah, it's the Society for the Promotion of Italian Opera. Or something yes, like <laughs> which is also a great joke. Um, you know, at that all, like there is those guys all get gunned down. So it's, it's, it has a pretty high body count way higher than I thought it was going to. Well, you know, it's, it, it's one of two reasons or three reasons why, uh, Wilder shot in black and white. Um, you know, he shot in black and white primarily because when they put the makeup on the, on Lemon and Curtis, it just looked too garish and they thought it would shock audiences. Uh, and he shot in black and white cause he wanted to set it in 1929 and give kind of that old time depression era feeling. And then black and white, that way, uh, there, there's not a lot of blood that you see, but a little bit that you see, like coming out of Toothpick Charlie's mouth, you know, it's like in Psycho, you don't get the, uh, you don't get the effect of the, uh, the, the shocking red blood. But the other thing I want to say about that, Sam, is um, 
is a really interesting uh, commentary on the Criterion disc. Um, and, and one of the things that the commenter points out is that uh, the film is one of the first comedies to kind of successfully bring in a, uh, the, the, top, the topic of death, especially violent death, within the context of a comedy. And uh, he even goes on to say, which of course I appreciated, that he felt a comedy like this made something like Dr. Strangelove possible, uh, or something like M.A.S.H. or Harold and Maude, if we go into the, into, the, into the 70s. So the idea that you could have kind of not only a different genre, but a very, but a violent genre, uh, coexisting with with comedy, which if you think about it makes sense. I mean, screwball is a very physical genre, so it, and that line between tragedy and comedy is is very thin. Um, this movie also is uh, uh, there's is famous for a few lines in the movie. So the closing line of this movie is, I think, was also on one of the uh, those AFI lists for like best movie lines. And uh, Ebert in his review, I mean, writing this years later. Uh, talked about how great of a line it is. And he says, and if you don't know what it is, I'm not going to tell you because it's such a great, and it is such a great moment. Unfortunately, I did know what, I did know how the movie, like the exact, I've seen the ending of the movie before, but um, but that's such a, such a great, uh, uh, such a great moment. And what I also love is that as great of a line as, as, uh, as him saying, nobody's perfect is um, that that was not intended to be the line. That was a placeholder because they were still thinking, oh, there's gotta be something better, you know? And, um, but but uh, uh, I love the whole uh, the whole idea that that the uh, Daphne character, the Jack Lemon um, Jerry Daphne character, uh, his idea of he's sort of convinced to be excited about the proposal and the engagement. <laughs> uh, cause, I mean, because there is this sense of it's like just like Sugar wants to kind of marry for money, he sort of sees this as like well. I'll marry for money too. And, 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 and that is the most potentially transgressive moment in, in, in the film, right? Because he, well, I mean, it's not only marrying for money. I, I think he actually kind of gets to enjoy Joey Brown. I mean, to me, mm -hmm. to me, one of the great sequences in the film or one of the great editing sequences is when you go back and forth between those two dancing and Sugar and, uh, and, and Junior on, on the yacht. Uh, and, 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 and what's interesting about that is in both cases, you get the quote woman being in charge. So in the dancing scene, um, Oswald keeps saying, you're leaving again, Daphne. And then of course the, the yacht scene, you have Junior getting sugar to basically se se seduce him. And I, and I think that actually, um, I think that Jack Lemon really ends up really kind of liking this Oswald guy, and then and then you know concocts his scheme, and then realizes I really shouldn't do that, and that's the point at which you know finally it's the first time that kind of Jerry is or Joe rather is flummoxed, uh, and he says you you can't do that. There's conventions, there's laws, and to think about you know thinking about how that line landed in '59, mm -hmm. thinking about how it lands now. I mean, it's kind of an accident of history, but it, it, it just keeps making the film even more interesting. Because, right. You know, he says, yes, he, he identifies laws, conventions, and those are just, that's exactly what we have been wrestling with as a society. What should the law allow or not allow? What, what conventions do we observe, do we not observe? So that kind of ends up keeping the, the, the film really timely, I think. I love the, the the subtle, very funny move in the in the dancing sequence when the flower switches mouths. Yeah, the rose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and I also love I love the the, the blindfolded musicians. Yes, 
dancing. <laughs> and uh, and then when they're when he's back in the hotel room and he's talking about taking very seriously like where they're going to go on their honeymoon and he wants to go here but I think Niagara Falls would be better and <laughs> and I like I I just I love that th- that he just gets sort of caught up in the idea and he's, sh- he's shaking the castanets he's all excited that's right <laughs> and, and, and Tony Curtis says why why would a guy want to marry a guy he says security <laughs> right. <laughs> The same reason a woman wants to marry a guy, supposedly. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, and then uh, this also, it, it, I want to talk about the 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 title to this movie because this is a this is a film where the title appears in the movie almost in a in an offhanded way. Yeah. Uh, in in in, in um, uh, but Tony Curtis in his this is also from that BBC story uh, in his uh, one of his memoirs he talks about. Um, the title of of the movie and how it also ties into the sort of fluidity um, of identity through in this movie. So I'm just going to read this paragraph, which has a, a quote from Curtis in it. It says, in Curtis's memoir about the making of the film, he confirms that Wilder and Diamond embedded this theme of fluidity uh, in its title. He says, uh, people, he argues, can be fluid as the pop songs of the 1920s which were performed in different styles, either sweet or hot, according to the audience's preference. The concept was important to our movie, Curtis writes. A person can be more than one thing, depending on the time, place, and whatever, sweet or hot. Mm. And of course, yeah, I mean, and, and, and jazz, yeah, that, that's that's kind of the, the nature of jazz, right? Jazz, jazz kind of embodies that, that kind of fluidity. It makes me think of the scene on the train, right, when they're rehearsing and the guys aren't playing exactly the tempo that Sweet Sue wants. So mm-hmm. they have to into a different tempo. And mu- music, yeah, music embodies that kind of ability to move into literally different keys, different approaches. So are there other things you want to talk about with this film? Well, I, ha- I-, I got to mention um, a-, a little more of the uh, kind of uh, mega or meta, meta cinem- cinematic aspect. Um, you know, I already talked about the idea that or the fact that uh, Marilyn Monroe's dress uh, kind of flies up like in the seven year itch. She does a she does a hip swinging walk like in Niagara. Um, she's been in uh, a gold digger in um, uh, in How to Marry a Millionaire. But she also was uh, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which I mentioned. She actually sang the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. So there's so there's you know for an audience watching this in 1959, it's got a lot of Marilyn Monroe layers. And one of my favorite lines in the film, or two of my favorite lines in the film are when she gets the diamond bracelet and she says, oh, this must be worth its weight in gold. Uh, <laughs> it's just, I just love that line. Um, and, 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 and how she, there's the refrain where she says, you know, I'm not very bright. Uh, so she kind of plays against that dumb, that dumb blonde uh, uh, kind of Im- image as well. Um, the other thing I want to talk, just mention briefly is, um, and this again is, is not a, is an insight that I took from the DVD commentary. Is another way to think about the structure of the film is to think about it, um, and it does move in three parts, right? Chicago, train, Florida, which, by the way, is also the structure of Preston Sturges's uh, *The Palm Beach Story*, uh, which is a, another film I'm recommending. Uh, but one of the ways to think about this is to think about a three-part movement of desire, deception, and discovery. So uh, the desire in Chicago, uh, the original Chicago is both to escape the mobsters, but to gain sugar. Uh, and then we have deception, disguises at various levels. And then we have discovery, which is the discovery both of the gangsters discovering who, this, who these women really are, 
uh, as well as the discovery of each of the characters of the, of the other's true identity. So I think that's a really kind of interesting way to think about the structure of the film. So uh, I will say I loved this. This was uh, this was one of those that I I don't know if I ever would have seen because it's one of those that I just like you don't get around to it. You don't get around to it. So it's another thing that's made this project really great. Is it it's uh, moved things up uh, up higher in my list of things things I need to see. So uh, so I, I really love that. What do you have for us for next week? Well, I, I've got what seems to me to be kind of a natural follow-up to uh, to this film, which is uh, 1982's Tootsie. Um, we haven't done any Dustin Hoffman yet, and uh, plus we haven't done Bill Murray in a while. And uh, of course, we get Bill Murray again in uh, in, in Tootsie. Um, so I, I think that, that that kind of moves up this issue of uh, of gender roles. Uh, the issue of disguise moves it up into the early uh, '80s, and I did I did rewatch the film a couple of years ago, and I thought that it 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 stood up better than I thought it would. Uh, so we'll see. But anyway, that's what I want to do next week is Tootsie. Fantastic! Yet another movie I have not seen. So I'm I'm always excited when it's something uh, when it's something new. So and that on the on that AFI list, Tootsie is number two. I didn't even know that, Sam. I just took a shot. And we've already watched number three, which is Doctor Strangelove. So you're We're hitting all the that. like. The, the top comedies there. All right, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending Some Like It Hot. Um, if you're listening to this and want to interact with the show, you can email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Subscribe to the network. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about the 1982 film Tootsie in the video store. <laughs>